we go, rejecting the screen, the Going ISO edition, as we do every Thursday. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast. Adam Stanko is out west. A little bit further south is Gerald Henderson, the 12th overall pick in 09. Out of Duke by the Charlotte Bobcats, eight years in the league. Charlotte, Portland, Philly, the dunk champion at the 06 McDonald's All-American game. And we'll get to that. But I want to start with why when you play golf and when you're with your buddies, they're playing the blues. And then why do you make them drive you back to the tips? That's a great question. Um, well, it, that, that's not always a solid. Like, it depends who I'm playing. You know, if I'm playing somebody, you know, like my dad, for instance, just in the last two years, he's made me play a tee further back than him because he feels like it's a bit unfair at, at his age of 64 that I'm just pounding the ball past his. Makes sense. So, yeah, which I, I, I gave him, and you know, because I was whooping him for a while, so I had to do something, and he won't take any strokes from me. So I, I had to at least do that. So that was, I thought that was fair. Yeah, but, but I, I've, heard from, I've heard from friends that you could very easily play from the blues with everybody else, but – is it something like you're trying to get in their heads? <laughs> well, it is something if, um, you know, they're playing from the blues and I'm playing from the blacks, the back tees, and I still hit it past them. Psychologically, <laughs> yeah. what, that would do, what that would do to a, a golfer, I can only imagine. So, you know, maybe I do it subconsciously. I get it. What about when you play with Jordan? Uh, well, we played one time. He beat me. He he brought me out there the day after we finished the season. I had absolutely no base, you know, just coming out there. I hadn't played in five, six months. So I'll admit that I lost to him. But um, we, I, I hit the ball further than him. You know, he's not like a big long hitter. He just knows how to put the ball in the cup. You know, his swing's not that pretty. Doesn't hit it a long way. Doesn't do anything really spectacular. He can chip and putt, though, pretty well. So I'll give him that. Did he talk any trash on the course? Uh, yeah, I'm sure he did. I mean, he kind of – that's how he communicates in trash talking. That's just like his natural – that's just his natural way of speech. Like everything that comes out of his mouth, he's, he's, he's saying some kind of slight or jabbing you somehow, you know. And But he – I think he likes it best when you give it back to him because he, he can – he can definitely um, take it too. So, you know, a bit of that. I've always had that kind of relationship with him. Speaking of trash talk, you talked about your dad and he played 13 years in the NBA, famously a teammate of Larry Bird's. He had the uh, 84 finals game to steal, which we all, all at least remember or have seen in some form or another. What is, what's your dad's best or maybe your own personal experience, but best Larry Bird story? Oh, well, he's got tons of them. You know, he probably could tell them better than me. But, you know, one of the things I remember him saying all the time about Larry is, um, you know, just his skill level. Because he couldn't couldn't run, couldn't jump, wasn't quick. But he had all the skills, you know, offensively and defensively, you know, to be able to be the special player he was. And... You know, he had great hands. He had a great knack for the basketball. Anytime the ball was around him, somehow he would come up with it. Um, 
you know, his his passing was such an underrated skill. People talk about how good of a shooter and scorer he was, but he just could uh, always find guys in rhythm, always put it in their pocket. Um, you know, fake passing, not even real passing. His fake, yeah. his up fake, mm-hmm. his fake passes, his behind the back, all that stuff he just was special at. And then um, obviously he could shoot the basketball. Um, and then another thing he was also really good at was rebounding. You know, at his position at six eight, six nine, being able to average in some seasons, what, 11, 12 rebounds, um, he just was an all-around player. So anytime a play needed to be made, um, Larry was going to make the play, you know, whether it was a huge rebound off of a stop at the end of the game, um, you know, the, obviously the big bucket, he had tons of those, but then the big assist because he played with other Hall of Famers. So it wasn't always going to be him taking the shot at the end of the game, but he would, he would you know, be trusted to – to make the right play, make the pass. And he did that so many times. When was the first time your dad made you watch the steal? <laughs> I, I've watched that steal a million times. <laughs> um, I'm actually looking at a picture right now of the steal. Him, you know, kind of clapping his hands together right after it happened in my man cave. <laughs> um you know, I always tell them, you know, it's a it's a play that kind of made our family a bit. That's a big time play and established him as a um, you know a, a big time role player on a championship team and kind of you know that was his fifth year in the league, and that was really the climax for him at his career. You know, after that year, he got traded to the Celtics or to the uh, SuperSonics and went on to other teams, but, um, I mean, he, he's not the type to really boast on himself like that. You, you, I'll see enough of it on NBA TV growing up and, <laughs> um, still to this day, but, um, he'll, he'll tell the story though, as you know, it's one of his things that he did was always bring energy. So, uh, he was, he was quick. I call him when I watch him play, he's like a little water bug. Mm-hmm. He just would like pick you up full court. <laughs> He's like he was like Ish Smith, right? Just like just <laughs> yes, zooming yes, yes. around the court. Now, he's taller than Ish, but he just would zoom around the court. He's so athletic, so quick. He was his anticipation was really good. He always was in really good shape. So on that particular play, they they were down two points. He needed to make something happen. And um, James Worthy and my dad my dad will describe it. He said he throw a, he threw a cupcake up in the air. Mm-hmm. And he just went and got it and uh, finished the play. So, you know, it's just one of those 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 plays that you, you just can't anticipate happening. Um, and it just so happened to be him, but it's him just doing what he does, just being a great anticipator and using his quickness and athletic ability to make something happen. More of the stories from Gerald in a moment. But with the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models of cars and trucks, it is impossible for one traditional chain storefront to stock all the parts you need. So that's why you go to rockauto.com. Family business, Mm -hmm. been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Rockauto.com 
is where you can shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. It's all there online. There's an unlimited space on the internet. And they've got everything from engine control modules to brake parts to taillights, motor oil. You can get a new carpet for the car. So no matter what you need, you can use their remarkably easy to navigate catalog and then quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and then choose the brand specifications and the prices you prefer. That's right. Prices you prefer. So why spend up to twice as much for the same parts at one of the traditional brick and mortar stores? Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car or truck and then write locked on L O C K E D on locked on two words in their How did you hear about us box? So they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. And Adam's car needs a lot of parts. Got sold rockauto.com. Gerald, you obviously have, have made a name for yourself, which obviously is so difficult to do when. When not only do you have his namesake, but but your father's famous. So, being that your dad played in the NBA, you obviously go along that path. What was the the best thing about having a dad who played in the NBA, and what was the worst? Well, when I was little, the best thing about having a dad playing the NBA was all the cool NBA players I got to meet by far. <laughs> you know, like I met Michael Jordan. And I was, what, uh, probably for the time that I can remember, probably, what, 12 years old, maybe? Mm. It was, the, it, and it actually wasn't at a basketball thing. It was at the Ryder Cup hmm. in 1999. We went out, went, out, went out there on a Saturday. Oh, at Brookline. Yep, at Brookline. And we, we should have went on Sunday when they had that crazy comeback. Mm-hmm. But um, we went out there, and we just kind of walked up on – Michael Jordan, uh, Mario Lemieux, and Brett Hall. Oh. <laughs> and at the time, I, I knew who Larry, Mario Lemieux was, but Brett Hall, obviously a Hall of Fame um, hockey player too. But I didn't know kind of how big they were, but obviously Michael was the biggest one. And I just was just like, I remember the feeling where I was just like, yo, this, I, Michael Jordan is not in my presence right now. <laughs> my dad said, like, my eyes and my mouth were just, like, wide open. <laughs> and, you know, when I went to shake his hand, um, his hand just wrapped around my hand. I can remember that like it was yesterday. You know, it's like his hand just swallowed my hand. Um, and, uh, you know, growing up, one of our really uh, close family friends, uh, still to this day, was Dr. J. He lived right down the street from me in um, in uh, Villanova. I used to be over his house all the time. And uh, one of the coolest things about his house was he had two refrigerators in his kitchen, which at that time was like monumental. Okay. <laughs> and w- one day I was just kind of walking through the house and I, you know, I knew the one fridge that had like all of the, food and stuff and I, I was so curious as to what this other fridge had and I went and opened it and I was probably what seven eight years old and I went and opened it and it was full of soda okay really? imagine imagine at oh. seven years old you know seeing a, a, a refrigerator full of soda like Sprite <laughs> you know Coca-Cola Dr. Pepper and he had a uh, he was sponsored by I'm, I'm sure Coca-Cola or whoever it was at the time and um, 
it's just the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it's like a treasure <laughs> chest. Yes, yes, exactly. It's like it opened and it's just like, ah, you know how it is. <laughs> how about the worst? How about the worst? Oh, man. Well, you know, as I got older and basketball started to be um, my the sport that I stuck with and I played tons of sports and I was a scratch golfer when I was younger and um, I chose basketball because I loved it so much. But, um, you know, the, the worst thing is, is probably, you know, which it ended up not being a bad thing for me, but is the kind of expectations uh, that come with with it. You know, every time people mention my name and mention my dad's name and three-time NBA champion, 13-year um, veteran, and it's always okay you know, this is Gerald Henderson's son. What, you know, can he have the career that his dad had and all these things? And, you know, it's, right. it's, it's cool when your dad's mentioned with you, but at the same time, you, you kind of want to go get your own stuff. You want to, you want to kind of create your own legacy and create your own path. So I use that as kind of fuel and fire, you know, because people always comparing me to my dad as opposed to just, you know, who is, who am I as a player? You know, why do I have to be as good as my dad or not be as good as my dad, whatever it is. So I, I, I really use that as motivation. And I probably say another thing is like, when you have a dad that plays in the NBA and my dad's not like a hands-off kind of guy, he, he, he is hands-on. He wants to, you know, if I committed to basketball, he wanted to make sure I was getting my workouts in and, you know, sometimes it can be too much. Sometimes, you know, you know, it's just when you're younger, you don't really realize the kind of work that um, that you got to put in. So you don't see your dad trying to help you as help. You see it as like just overwhelming. So right. like it put it put a little strain on your relationship. You know, as I was growing up with my dad, just because you just start to, you know, just like any kid, you start to resent your parents when they push you too hard. But as I got older, you know, I see what he was trying to do. And he pushed me to be a pro and, you know, get get through college and, um, you know, accomplish some of the things that I did. So I'm thankful for that. I always felt from the outside and then talking to some folks on the inside that LeBron never respected Steph or hasn't respected Steph as much as he would have if – Steph wasn't an NBA kid if Steph didn't grow up the way he did. Did you ever feel that you weren't respected as a player because you were an NBA kid? Um, I don't. I think that sometimes, you know, people look at, um, you know, their own situations and then, you know, compare it to how I grew up, you know, which people – some people might consider silver spoons, you know, because, you know, I did have, I had two parents in the household. I had a parent who uh, played in the NBA, who created a life for, um, you know, his kids that was comfortable and safe. Um, and, you know, as I'm now a parent myself and I'm grown, I, I see, um, how important that is for your kids and how much of a blessing it was for me to have that, you know, and everybody's situation isn't like that. 
but in other guys looking at me, you know, sometimes, you know, they, they may, they may think you're soft, you know, they may think you're, um, uh, because you didn't go through some of the things that they went through, um, or they assume that, right. You know, that you, you know, you may not be as tough as them and, you sure. know, it's, uh, I don't really think it works that way. You know, because if, if, if they knew my father <laughs> and all of the people around me know my dad, you know, they, they can only imagine some of the tough things that he put me through uh, to try to prepare me for what I would need uh, as I became a man and went into the NBA. And, um, you know, and then you go through times three years at Duke and you go, you, you're under the watch of another tough man, right? So. You know, you learn you learn these things as you as you grow older, and um, you know I I I really believe that um, you know like you mentioned Steph and LeBron, I I've never heard that out of LeBron's mouth, but LeBron respects um, respects Stephen's game. I know that much. You know, I, if anything that he doesn't respect maybe is uh, who who he was able to get his championships with. Right. So mm-hmm. you got LeBron who went one for four against Stefan. Okay. With teams that weren't even close to right. as good as the teams that Stefan has. Right. Um, but he was able to, you know, fight, fight like hell, you know, to try to compete against him. Right. So maybe he could be resentful of all the, the talent that Stefan had on his teams uh, during that time. So let's talk high school hoops. The game against Oak Hill, you're at Episcopal Academy, with Ty Lawson, Michael Beasley, Nolan Smith, the legendary head coach Steve Smith on the sideline, playing Oak Hill at the Palestra. What do you remember about before the game, in-game, post-game? It was something you can never forget because it's probably – we played some some big games my senior year at Episcopal, but you know when you're playing a team that's got uh, eight guys playing to, gonna gonna go and play Division One basketball, you know top ranked in the nation. Um, you know you're playing at the Palestra. You know you're always gonna remember that. So we played them. I remember pregame. Um, I'm not sure if there was a game ahead of ours. They usually had a couple games going on, but we, you know, the, the stadium's filling up. I think it was a weekend game, maybe a Sunday game, and the stadium's filling up, and, um, you know, the whole city's there because we got our own fans, obviously, and people that like to come watch, you know, our team and Wayne and I, but um, the whole city was there because, you know, Oak Hill was coming into town, and they wa- they wanted to come support you know, the Philly team. So it, this wasn't just our fans. So I thought that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And we started out the game. Um, Wayne got a back door. We were at Coach Doc threw up this play uh, for Wayne to get a back door. And we scored on our first time down. And the game was on and rolling after that. And we played them really even. Michael Beasley was special. Ty Lawson was special. Goodness gracious. Nolan Smith was special, my little brother. Um, and then Ty Lawson gets his fourth foul, 
Okay, you get five fouls in high school. There's probably about, what, six minutes left in the fourth quarter, and their coach takes him out the game. We come down and score. Okay, we're probably down, what, six, eight points at that time, maybe okay. ten points. And they hold the ball. Do you guys oh, remember that? They held the ball for three minutes. Coach Doc didn't, didn't want to come out of um, the zone we were in, mm-hmm. okay? And I remember vividly these images of Nolan. I, we talk about it all the time. This dude was standing just over half court, okay, holding the ball, like, in, on his side, like, wiping his the bottom of his sneakers. That, that's, how, <laughs> that's how comfortable he was on the court. And what I remember Wayne was like, like uh, screaming and yelling at them, like, "Yeah, hey, y'all scared, y'all scared," and saying all this stuff. And they held the ball for three minutes, okay. And then they they called timeout, put Ty back in the game, and the game was over. Why not foul? Um, we didn't want to foul because there were six there were six minutes left in the game. So if we start fouling, we're gonna, they're gonna we're gonna put them in the penalty. Okay, and now we're shooting free throws for the rest of the quarter. Right. One thing we could have done is gone to man to man. Sure. And you know, but all game the zone had killed them, right? We mm. had to see this was like the top scoring team in the nation, and we had held them down because our zone was really good in high school. We worked really well together. So the one thing we could have done is gone man to man, but Coach Doc didn't want to. I, I can't say if that was a mistake or not, but you know, against the one of the a team that was probably better than us, you you got to go get that win. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't sit back and just hope that now, you know, with three minutes to go, we're gonna tie the score. You know, with the kind of offensive talent they had, so you know, maybe that was a mistake in hindsight, but um, you know, they did hold the ball against a lesser team. For three minutes, they were scared. Oh. Man. They yeah, were we scared. need to we need to get on them about that. We'll we'll have to make an Instagram post or something of this story. About <laughs> Please, how they were scared. And I could just see as as Dan Doherty. I, I remember meeting him a few times, interviewing him as a coach. I could totally see him saying, "No, we're just staying in the zone. I don't care. We're staying in the zone." I could I could I can picture it. So stoic, so stoic. Yes, yes, yes. So. Gerald, now it um, for those of us that were around during the time and cover and or at least even knowledgeable about the high school scene, I mean, you and Wayne Ellington are are forever going to be linked. But now it's been a while. There are people that may not even remember or or weren't around and didn't know at all about the connection that you guys are both superstars at the high school level playing together. And then you go to Duke, he goes to North Carolina. What was it like to go through the journey? When you consider the fact that normally the the guys in your position, like there's one of them maybe in a county, there's one of them in a district, maybe in a state, to have two on the same team, both going through the same journey as as all Americans and all that kind of stuff. What was that experience like for you, for you and him? It was awesome. It really was. When you when you're in it, you're kind of just living it, and you just don't really realize how unique your situation is but as as we always sit and reminisce and 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 look back um 
I'm not sure that there's that's happening. You know, I'm, <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I I love to see how often that's happening. Uh, you, you get guys, you know, you get guys now that kind of team up, kind of like the pros do. They team up and go to the same high schools and stuff like that. But you know, for the kind of path that we took, being the best team in Philly and then playing AAU together with the players in New Jersey. And then, you know, doing some of the cool things we did our senior years and then both going, both choosing Duke and Carolina, which is a story within itself, Um, you know, and then getting drafted in the same year was was really cool. Wayne, Wayne ended up winning national championship his last year at North Carolina, which is, you know, I wish I could have won one when I was at Duke, but I was just as happy for him as anybody because that's one of the things we talked about growing up in high school uh, that we wanted to accomplish before we came pros, right? So then we get drafted the same year, and, um, you know, I'm retired now, but playing against each other for eight years in the NBA, I mean, it's 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 almost just like we drew it up. It's <laughs> – it's it's uh, it's kind of weird, you know, because uh, as I've gotten older, I really realized that, you know, some things, you know, you can you can speak into fruition, and that's positive and negative. I really right. believe in that. You can talk things into existence. Um, you know, we are in the gym, you know, talking about our goals, talking about the things we want to do, how we're gonna get there. And, you know, when we put the work in, you know, under God's grace, I mean, these things happen, you know, we're, (laughs) it's crazy. We're on, I'm on the other end of it now. You know, I didn't plan out this far, you know, we ain't talking about having (laughs) life and kids and businesses, you know, this is all new stuff, but the stuff that we talked about and said we wanted to do, right. It happened. So it was pretty cool. So what is the story with you choosing Duke and Wayne? choosing Carolina? I always thought I was better than Wayne, so I went to the better school, and he went to the, the second best school. <laughs> <laughs> really, that's what it comes down to. <laughs> nah. Um, you know, honestly, man, we never talked about it. Uh, we, you know, we we obviously knew uh, we were going to be, you know, go to some of the, one of the better schools, whatever, whichever school it was. And Carolina recruited me, and I really did actually like Carolina, man. I, the campus is beautiful. I love Roy. He's a great guy. He's a golfer, too. Um, I actually got a funny story to, to, to tell about Roy and golf if you got a second. Of course. So all along the recruiting process, me and you know Roy and my dad have talked about golf. And he's, at that time, I think he had played a lot more golf and he, uh, you know, he was a single-digit handicap. So all along the recruiting process, he's telling us how good of a golfer he is, where he's played around the world, and, um, you know, who he's played with and all this stuff. So so when I go on my visit there, right, we go around the whole campus, and then he says, all right, we're going to go have lunch. So we said, where are we having lunch? He's like, we'll go over to the driving range. I was like, oh, they, they pulling out, they pulling out everything. They, they really trying to get me. So um, we went to the driving range. They had a, it was a beautiful spring day. 
They had everything set out on a platter at the driving range. And, you know, the golf coach comes out there and uh, he brings a four iron out there, okay? And I get up there and I just start streaming them, right? Just, you know, I, I, I played golf since I was seven years old. So, you know, I have a natural golf. Center. I used to get golf lessons. I used to do the whole thing, play junior golf. So, you know, I hadn't played, but just going going out there hitting balls on the range was like nothing. So I was just typing them one after the other, okay? And so I hit a few more, and we heard out the, out the back of the driving range, the golf coach yells, Roy, if you don't want them, we'll take them. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty funny. And so – Roy <laughs> then gets up there. I give him the four iron. Okay, he does a little stretching and whatnot. And he gets up there, and there's like a little wood to the right of the the range. He gets up there and shanks it right into the wood first <laughs> shot. Okay, this is no lie. Okay, and then I this is no lie to you. Okay, he continued to shank nine more balls in a row. Nine in a row. And he was telling us all his time for months, for years, how good of a golfer he was. Me and my dad sitting there looking at him. His face was getting all red, and he was embarrassed, and it was just – it was hilarious. But, you know, maybe after seeing me hit the ball, like, he felt a little nervous or whatever it was. But we'll never forget that story, man. Every time I see him, I remind him of that, too. How could you trust him to coach in a big game <laughs> when he was nervous with you behind him on a driving range? Exactly, man. That's why I didn't go there, you know, <laughs> just because of that. But, oh, the best part of the story was that, uh, you know, a few minutes after that, um, and God rest his soul, but we look back and Dean Smith is walking up the driving range. Uh, coming to say hello and he's mm. passed now but for my dad especially because he grew up in Virginia and you know his era was all Dean Smith and um, you know so my dad like really enjoyed that obviously I love meeting him too but my dad had you know he resonated far more with my dad and his era of basketball so that was really cool to see them talking and stuff so Great story. And then I, you know, then I ended up not going. Right. <laughs> what, what, what was the phone call like to Jay Wright to say that you weren't going to Villanova? Oh, that was tough. That was tough because those were really my last two choices. And then Carolina was third. But uh, that was tough, man, because, man, Jay's another guy I love. He's, he's, he's top notch. It's hard for anybody on earth not to like Jay Wright. He is just um, – he's as good as they get. He really is. And they do have a – you know, very much like Duke, they have a, a, a family-type um, program over there. They're really closely knit. And, um, you know, it's just – they're closely knit, but the school was just too close to my house. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to get away and have a little separation between, you know, my, my, my family – um, you know, my sister went to Villanova. Um, I know she'd be going home and telling my parents everything I was doing up there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it just, you know, my friends, everybody, I just wanted to get a, away. 
you know, and do something. And then, uh, so that's why I ended up not going there, but I had so many ties to Nova, man. I go over there and work out all the time. Um, shoot my cousin, I had a cousin also who went there, Shay, Shay Pinkney. Um, he's, he's been my best friend since I was real little. His dad's Ed Pinkney, who yeah, sure. was their star player in 85, I believe when they won. Mm-hmm. And he was, a, he was an assistant coach there at the time. Yep. Uh, I was getting recruited. So just so many just ties to Nova. So it was really hard to, to tell them that I wasn't coming. But Jay Wright was just the nice guy that he is, man. He's like, man, he's like, I just, I, I hate to see you go anywhere else because we thought you could be great here. But, um, you know, you're going to be great wherever you go, man. And, you know, we'll continue to check on you and um, obviously, you know, your family. So that's, that's he's, he's the best. Well, making that phone call is, is one thing because not every kid makes that call. Teams yeah. and, and schools just find out when whenever the player makes the decision. So did you know from the beginning that once you had it down to those two or those three that you'd actually make those phone calls? Oh, yeah. No, my, my dad made me. My dad made mm-hmm. me make those. Yeah, it's a calls. good move. Yeah, I mean, he called like some of the schools early. We let them know, you know, maybe through probably my dad probably called them you know, early on, hey, we're just, it's just not going to work out or whatever. Because even some some of the schools early on, you don't even speak to the head coach yet. You're speaking to the assistant right. coach or whoever it may be. Um, so you're not that deep into the recruiting process. So it's easier to, to make those calls. They don't have to be as formal. But um, when it came down to Carolina, Duke, and um, Villanova, you know, I had to make all those calls. My dad made me. You know, I guess left my dad's little way probably of, um, you know, making me a man. You got to get some balls and just, you know, make, make the calls you need to make. And especially because by then I had kind of created relationships with Roy and Jay, Jay Wright. So Jay Wright I had known longer than all of them. I'd known him since um, – uh, my my cousin used to date Brooke Sales, who played for Nova, and Jay yeah. was the coach. You know, early two thousand. So, you know, I I know him for a long time. So, you know, the, the the call that didn't happen that I was most afraid of was calling Coach K and telling him that I wasn't coming. <laughs> he he was the, he was the one with you know his, with his demeanor, and he's the one that you see more than any of those coaches. Um, that you're intimidated of the most. And he's the one that, uh, you know, I didn't have to fortunately make that call that I wasn't coming. I told him I was. But, um, you know, to, to to get Coach K in your living room and tell him, you know, I'm not, you know, he was in there, you know, for an official visit at the house. And um, I just I couldn't imagine telling him no. <laughs> and I, well, it's, it's still to this day, I haven't told him no. <laughs> yeah, for anything, for anything, right? I, well, right. we'll we'll ask more about about Coach K, but but I'm curious. So, 2006 McDonald's game that you play in, you have 16 points. Everyone knows what Kevin Durant turned into, but you had a chance to be on the court with Kevin Durant and Greg Oden. For people that didn't get a chance to even see Greg Oden, never mind play with him, um, 
what kind of talent can you explain that Greg, what was Greg Oden at that time? Well, at the time, I mean, Greg was the largest human being I had ever been around, played with. Um, you know, obviously there's some huge guys in the NBA, but he was just overpowering with his size. You know, his skills were improving and, um, you know, he was getting better, you know, with doing things that just weren't dunks. But, you know, he just, at that, at that level, he could just dominate just because how big he was. So, you know, it's unfortunate that he did have the injuries and stuff that he did. I think he could have been uh, a Hall of Fame type player. And mm. he's such a good dude, man. He really is. Um, but just, he just, man, he just like, um, him and Kevin will obviously would have been different players and Kevin would have done his more off the skill. So it would have been a little flashier, but um, the thing Greg even was able to do in high school, um, you know, healthy in the NBA, it would have looked the exact same because he's so big and, mm. you know, he's, he's really, he's, he's not, he, I'm not sure how skilled he would have been in the NBA, but in today's NBA, that's kind of which, which, what teams look for. They want guys that can set really good screens, that can run the floor, um, mm-hmm. that can catch lobs, and can protect the basket. And that was all the four things that he was really good at. Um, so he would have been perfect in today's type NBA for a very long time had he stayed healthy. And one of these days, we'll actually talk to you about playing in the NBA. But staying on the, that McDonald's game, in the that West that the West squad with KD, Brook, and Robin Lopez. Then the East squad, Adam mentioned Greg Oden, Thad Young, Brandon Wright, Wayne Ellington, your teammate, Mike Conley, Lance Thomas, your Duke teammate, Earl Clark, Javaris Crittenden, Ty Lawson, who you mentioned before. How were how was the starting five decided? I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. Um... You know, there were some pretty intense practices. I'll give you that. Um, we, you know, guys probably thought at the time that we were going to, you know, maybe earn our spots. And that could have been said to us. I can't really remember. But, um, you know, look, <laughs> there's a lot of politics that goes into that stuff as well. You know, so if they were predetermined as to who was going to start, I wouldn't be surprised at all. But did, did did I start the game? Yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, I know I know one thing. When I got around the best players in the country, I was gonna try to find a way to stand out, you know, and and not do anything crazy. But I just was gonna go hard, you know. So when all the scouts and everybody is at practice watching, right, and some of the guys are playing around and you know, just kind of happy to be there. I was taking names, you know, so if that had anything to do with me starting the game, um, I see if there's 10 starters. I, uh, I, I guess I was a, maybe a top 10 player in that class, maybe. But, you know, that's up for question. But I know, you know, the coaches probably thought at the time, you know, because of what they saw in practice and whatnot that I was, you know, worthy of starting. So, and there's some names, there's some names on those teams, man. Some real names on that team. We had a really good class. I mean, DJ Augustine, I don't know if you mentioned him. 
Uh, you know, I always, I just was talking literally last week with John Shire about um, how he even made the team. You know, <laughs> I, was joking, but I said, I said, gracious, man. I was like, um, you know, it's really surprising to me that you made this team. You know, you had the only the only reason you won is because you had Kevin Durant on your team. You only he only had like seven points. Or John, <laughs> John had seven points. So I was like, you didn't really contribute to <laughs> you guys winning, just so you know. So let's get to Duke. Why did? Coach K make you and Lance Thomas practice once in full sweats. <laughs> oh man, that's a funny story. It probably wasn't even Coach K. So we played Wisconsin in the Big East, uh, Big Ten Big East Challenge or uh, ACC Big Ten Challenge. Sorry, and um, we beat them by like 30, 40 points. Okay, and this is an old secret that is kind of unspoken. I guess it's an unspoken secret. We know because we're in there every day and we know the temperatures in Cameron. But on certain days, on certain games, the temperature in Cameron tends to fluctuate. Okay. Anybody who goes in there or goes in there routinely understands that, you know, certain games, it's a little hot than others. Okay. So Wisconsin used to have these big old seven footers, big slow mm-hmm. guys that, that, Coach K didn't think was were in great shape, and he always thought that we were in the best shape. So for this particular game, it was blazing hot in the gym. And this is this is the middle of the winter. Okay, it makes absolutely no sense. Okay, and so we're blowing them out after the game. You know, Coach Dawkins, Coach Johnny Dawkins, who's at um, what is it um, UCF now? Yes. Um, he comes up to us and he says, good game, guys. Good game. Like, thanks, coach. He's like, man, you know, kind of hot in there, man, today. Like, what was up with that? Like, um, you know, is it going to be like that every game? Like, you know, it's a little hot, man. Can we make a cooler next game? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll look into it. Okay. And so next day at practice, this was a late game, too. We played a 9 o'clock game on ESPN. So next day at practice, practice is at like one o'clock. So it's not much recovery time. Okay. And this would never happen now. They never do this to them, but we get, uh, we get (laughs) ready to practice and we see these sweatsuits sitting on the the scores table, two of them. And nobody's really paying attention to them. But so then we're about to bring it together. And coach Dawkins brings over these sweatsuits, you know, as we're in a huddle, he says, Hey guys, let's have a good practice today. He's like, G and Lance, here goes some sweatsuits for you guys. Uh, since you since you were concerned about the temperature in Cameron last night, um, you know, just so you know, that's that's the way the games are going to be. So you guys need to be prepared to um, to practice to play in the heat. So you're going to practice in it today. Go ahead, put them on, and you guys get going with the layup drill or whatever we were doing to start practice. Yo. And I looked at this dude like, you can't, you got to be kidding me. Like, come on, man. And so we, he made us put these sweatsuits on, and we practiced for about an hour and a half. With full. Now, these are thick, heavy sweatsuits. This isn't like your, your, um, your, your kind of sweatsuits, thin, breathable stuff that we got nowadays. This is thick, like um, cozy sweats with hoods on them. 
right? These are, this, this is this is hoodies. Oh. So we're running around playing, doing practice five on five drills with hoodies flapping, right, in the back of us. And this oh. is like three X. These are three X sweats. Right, these aren't like fitted. This is 2006, 2007. How guys were wearing stuff. So like at, at our breaks and stuff, like I was stripping down, like almost naked, sitting on the bench, like pulling up my uh, my hoodie and stuff because I just was blazing hot. But the but I but the crazy thing is, is I had the best practice I've ever had in my life, because I was just like I was dunking everything. I was block. I was flying around like. <laughs> it's like you couldn't imagine because I was playing in rage. I was I was so mad that it was happening. That's incredible. You've been asked a million times about the famous play 2007 in Chapel Hill when you break Tyler Hansborough's nose. Hey, listen, I know you guys did a podcast together years later. You guys have talked about it a bunch. My one question for you is, after it happened, what did your teammates say to you? They said, yo, you good? And I was like, yeah, I'm good. And then we just drove back to Duke. <laughs> like, it wasn't, this wasn't a, um, for us, it wasn't a big deal. Right? I mean, that, that probably doesn't sound great, but it really wasn't. We lost the game. Okay. Uh, Tyler did, did get jacked up. Um, it was, I, it was not designed to be that way. You know, I did not mean to, uh, hurt him like I did. It ended up looking, it was worst case scenario with me trying to swipe down and hit the ball, hit anything that was going towards the rim because we did have a no layup rule. But um, it was just was one of those things that turned out worst case scenario. Funny thing is, as we're doing this podcast, me and Tyler Hansborough did a podcast together a few years ago, about two, two three years ago. And it was on Duke Carolina. And we were doing updates every week on each team during the season. We had special guests on there. We had Grant Hill. We had Roy Williams, had Elton Brand, and a couple other guys. So we've actually, I wouldn't, I don't, I, don't, I mean, I consider Tyler a friend. Like, we're friendly. He's a good guy. Uh, and hopefully, I, you know, at least he said on the podcast that he's, he's forgiven me for that. And, um, you know, life has moved on. I, I called him directly after uh or a day or two after that thing happened and he was cool we've had some testy moments on the court since then but um it's all good you know wayne wayne called me right after um the incident happened when i got back to duke checked on me and it's it's really funny you can see in the video as it's happening you know, Wayne, Wayne's in the game. He's out on the perimeter boxing out, and he sees what happened, and he kind of gives this look like, uh, shoot, here goes G again. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's seen me foul some guys hard. He really, He's seen it a bunch of times. He was like, oh, man, the game's almost over, G. What you doing, man? Goodness gracious. So <laughs> it's really funny if you look at that video, you can see it. Did you ever feel like Hansborough tried to get you back in the league? Uh, nah, not really. He, um, not that I can remember. I mean, he's just a tough nose. He's just a hard nose playing cat. You know, I wouldn't, he, he plays pretty clean. You know, actually that summer, that summer we played, um, 
pickup actually over there at Carolina. And we matched up. This is months after the incident happened. And I remember we were, we were matched up one-on-one one time and he got a stop. I think I turned the ball over and the whole, the whole gym, all his teammates and stuff got hyped and stuff because he stopped me from scoring, which was pretty funny. But um, it, it, it's, it's a big deal because his face was so bloody, right? You, people are so passionate about Carolina basketball just as they are Duke, you know, in the whole rivalry. So it's been, I think, blown out of proportion a bit. I get I it. I did break it's a note, though, which wasn't, which wasn't, which wasn't yeah, very you nice. <laughs> yeah, you it messed happens. them up. It happened. You messed them up. Uh, draft, draft workouts. We always get great stories about certain draft workouts. Is there one that will forever stand out to you? Um, well, I had to do quite a bit of them. I did. I ended up doing twelve. I did. Um, I did two of them over. I did uh, the Nets and I did the Bobcats twice. And um, you know, mine were standard. I guess the one that does stand out a bit, which was my best one, I thought was with the Knicks. And at the time, I really did want to get drafted by them. And um, uh, Stefan was in this workout with me. He was in a couple others with me. But um, we did a workout, and we obviously know what kind of shooter he's become. And he was a really good shooter in college. But, um, you know, I I was on fire, couldn't miss a shot, right? And we were just going back and forth, back and forth, all these shooting drills. And um, he took my shooting to another level that day. I'd never shot the basketball in a workout like that a day in my life but because he was there and you know I really wanted to get drafted by the Knicks at the time um and um I knew that he was going to go before me you know I just I wanted to impress and so I was trying to match everything he was doing he pulled the best out of me and really all the guys there I can't remember all the the names but all of us balled out that day because um, you know, we had some really talented guys there, but, you know, Stefan was kind of the, the guy that we knew was going to go before us. So we were kind of all shooting for him. So it was, it was one of the best workouts I had. See, that's why I thought I was, I was going to go because oh. the Knicks told me, the Knicks told me if you're available, um, if you're available where, um, when it's our pick. He's like, you're going to be one of two picks, okay? And they didn't give us the other name. And so when it got to eight, I started getting really nervous. I was like, yes. Because when Stefan got picked seven, I was like, hell yes. Because I knew if he got to eight, they were definitely going to pick him, okay? And so when it got to eight, I, I remember my hands were sweating. I was holding my mom's hand. I was like, please go to New York. And... um and then I was sitting next to my agent and he was on the phone with New York. And I remember it was like the, the clock was counting down from like, you know, whatever it was before their pick. And um, he was talking to him, talking to him. his face was all red and stuff. And then he, he hung up the phone. And he said, they're going to take Hill. And I was pissed, man. Oh, I was so mad. So I was like, damn, I could, well, at least I still got, I got the net. 
I knew I knew DeRozan was going to go nine to Toronto. Okay, then you had um, who was picked in tenth? Brandon and Jennings. Nets had eleventh. Brandon Jennings. Milwaukee. I didn't even work out for Milwaukee, and so I wasn't going to go there. And then I knew the Nets were going to take um, Terrence Williams, who was considered who, who they considered. Um, a lot of people considered better than me. So, you know, or considered us the same position and they liked him. He's, you know, he's really, he was a really good ball handler too. Um, so then I was like, oh, Charlotte might be all right. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not New York. It's not some of these other teams, but, you know, that's, that's where I started my career. So crazy how all that stuff goes down. Yeah, and the, in the, T-Wolves, Steph Curry thing was even crazier because they had the two picks, five and six, and they got five by trading Randy Foy and Mike Miller. It's just wild to think that uh, that was the price for Steph Curry. They could have gotten Steph for Randy Foy and Mike Miller. That's the thing how, you know, the game, the game has changed so much. It's turned, it turned into Steph's style of game. I mean, he's, he's changed the game in itself. Okay, but when you have Johnny Flynn, who had a uh, the athleticism, he had the kind of creativity, shooting ability, finishing ability. He was flashy. Um, when you had him, and then you have Rubio, who was also flashy and like the sexy pick, right? And then you got Steph, who's right in there with him. But, um, you know, there was no – there was no separation between them at the time, right? From people's perspective. And um, so I don't, I I think they just went with their gut, right? And didn't know that he was going to change the game, right? He was the special shooter out of all three of those, but the shooting at the time wasn't like, the vital thing right nowadays shooting is if you can't shoot it's hard for you to play in the nba for sure you got to do something else like extremely special so you know but it wasn't always like that yeah and it's crazy to think back i mean that draft wasn't thought of too highly but now you look back with blake and harden and steph and DeRozan. i mean you guys have had some class come out of come out of there um so you you end up with the Bobcats, and you said something interesting recently. You said that <clears throat> I think it was after you'd played well against, or at least challenged Kobe, that Larry Brown like pulled you out of the game or something. And and you said he didn't want you to play well. So what did you mean by that? Well, <laughs> you 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 get a really great vision of the NBA as you continue to play in it and then when you pull yourself out of it and you see, you know, how much of a business that the NBA is. So, you know, really players are assets. You know, when you, you it's 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 almost crazy to talk about, you know, when you, you see a young guy coming in and you just think you're playing ball just like you have your whole life. But not you know, there's a value on you now. And you can be dealt and traded. And, you know, those are real terms that are used on other um, <laughs> other business uh, endeavors, 
but now you're actually talking about people, which is a whole conversation in itself. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, he didn't, he, he's never liked young players. He's never liked to play young players. So, you know, if you're, if you're a young player and you're going to play, and this is kind of, um, you know, Carolina kind of, he comes from that, um, from that lineage is, you know, it's, it's kind of seniority type idea, you know, where it's like the older guys are going to play. And so he's all the teams that he's had have done well, have had older guys playing his Sixers teams. Um, and if you can remember back in the day when Rajah Bell was playing, mm-hmm. what was he course, doing? Yeah. What was yeah. he, what was he in there to do? Play D. Defend. Play defense. Play defense. So, you know, when I, I played defense, but I could also score, right? So when he would put me in the game, I'd be trying to score, right? When I'd be in practice, I'd be trying to score. And so he didn't he didn't like that, you know, a young guy was coming in there, you know, scoring and the, the vets weren't, you know, taken away from the shine from the vets. That's what I believe. And, you know, it's, that's kind of – people know that about Larry Brown. And so, um, you know, he's always trying to find ways, okay, to make me a tradable asset, okay, Um, or show the uh, upper management that I wasn't ready to play or make me look bad in a way so that he could trade me so he can get somebody else that he wanted. I mean, it happens all the time. Um, You'll see – even or like around the trade deadline, you know, you'll see a whole bunch of guys that ain't played all year that are on bad teams. Um, you'll see them get a whole bunch of playing time. Well, it's so other teams can see them, right? Play or not play, okay? But typically play, and they want to see can they still play? And okay, well, before the trade deadline, let's pick them up, right? You'll see that all mm-hmm. the time. But in this instance, you know, I think he wanted to show of her management that I wasn't ready to play when he threw me in there to play against Kobe. And I actually did really well. And then, <laughs> and then I didn't play next game. Oh, <laughs> and we won. We, and we won the game. He hadn't played me for two weeks. I, I go in there. He throws me in against Kobe. I played really well, played some really good defense and scored a couple buckets. And then he probably didn't play me for another two weeks. Right. So Jeez. he was just looking for some bait to be able to trade me. And I, I've known multiple times from talking to MJ and talking to uh, my agent that he's trying to get rid of me all the time. So, you know, the Bobcats ended up getting rid of him, which coaches get dealt more than players. So that's just part of the game. Yeah. So when they get rid of him, that's interesting. So, they start you guys start 9-19 your second season. You start the last 25 games of the season, including yeah. a 32 point outburst against against the Magic. During that stretch, what's what's it feel like to be an NBA guy now that, that the team has given confidence to? What's that what's that feel like as a player? It's a great feeling because you kind of you kind of wait and dream your whole life about it. And you know, it's, it's, it's finally happened and you're in the rotation and, you know, you're at the highest level and your coach is calling on your name to score night in and night out. 
and you're playing against the best players. It's, I mean, there's no better way to describe it than, you know, it's the best. You know, that's um, – I wasn't playing on a good team. We didn't have a great record. And so, you know, being sent to another team, a winning team, would have been great. But, um, you know, that was my situation. So I tried to make the most of it and be the best player I could at the time. So, you know, it was pretty cool. The seven and fifty nine season. Ugh. I know there weren't many. I know there weren't many high moments. What yeah. was the what was the most fun night you guys had that year? <laughs> <laughs> on the court or off the court? Off the court. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the on the court. I'm sure. I mean, nothing I could talk about here. But I will. All right. Well, how about how about like, how about like so? Give us one example of a lot of fun that you guys did have together that you can say on the air just so oh, man. J- just so it's understood just so it's understood that like yeah you guys are having a brutal season and it's the well, worst winning percentage in nba history but it wasn't like you were you're going home and drowning yourself in tears every night hell no um you know that was that was kemba rookie year mm-hmm. um that was the first time i got to know him and kemba you know till now kemba's like a brother to me you know he's He's Kemba was in my wedding. Um, just such a good dude. We played four years to go together in the backcourt in Charlotte. And, um, you know, I got, I have to look at the rest of the roster that year. I can't really remember all the guys that were on that team. Charles Oakley was an assistant coach. I can tell you that much. Oh, man. Um, I saw Oak try to fight a couple guys. I definitely saw that. He tried to fight Kwame Brown one time because he thought he was BSing in one of our shoot arounds, like doing drills. I looked down on the other end of the court and, like, they're breaking them two up. (laughs) I saw Oak almost try to fight Gerald Wallace one time because he wouldn't take a towel off his head one time. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's just stupid stuff. Um, that was funny. Oak, Oak's like him and my dad have been really good friends for a long time, and Oak's like a he's like an uncle, man. It's like having my uncle on the on the uh, coaching on the team, man. He Oak's such a good dude. Um, what else? I we had some characters. I know Tyrus Thomas was on that team. We had Ben Gordon, I believe. We had we had a lot of we had a lot of personalities. All good guys though. Just a lot of personalities. So you know. I, I wish we would have won some more games though. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> Holding that record. In- and I think I was the leading scorer on that team, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. So you don't really want to be the leading scorer on the worst team ever. That says nothing about your your uh there's nothing what positive for you in uh in 20 in 2015 you you exercise your player option and then a week later you're you're traded to the blazers how did how did all that come about if i can remember correctly um i had a player option on a uh the last year of my my third year in um in charlotte 
so we exercised, I think it was for like, what, six million maybe. And, um, you know, I think at that time, because just in that past season, they had brought Lance Stevenson in that year. So I knew they were trying to get rid of me. You know, they were mm. trying to get somebody new in, in my, at the two position. And so, you know, when that happened, when Lance came in, I knew that was a reality. You know, I actually, I found out about the trade. I had taken a nap. It was probably the start of the middle of the summer. And, um, you know, just woke up. I turned the TV on. I was watching TV. Then, then I just hear my phone going off crazy. And I look at my phone and there's like, literally like 25 30 missed phone calls okay my text messages is probably over 100 text messages and i was like what somebody die or something like what happened and um you know it was my agent calling me and i called him and found out and then i saw it on espn on the ticker i was like dang just like that gone and um i actually was happy to leave I really was because um, we sucked. I mean, we weren't um, actually that team. That team that we had the year that, that past season, we weren't even a playoff team. The the year before that, we had a really good playoff team uh, with Al Jefferson. So it was Al, mm -hmm. myself, and Kemba, and Marvin Williams, Cody Zeller. Um, Chris Douglas Roberts, mm -hmm. who I don't even know if he's still hooping or not, but he was such a big piece on our team. We had Luke Rittenauer, I believe. We had Mo Williams. Um, we had MKG. We had, um, we had a good little group. We had a great defensive team. Great defensive team. Um, so we had a good little group, but that was years before. So we had, you know, we weren't as good this, this following year. And I, lo I actually loved Lance Stevenson to death. Like he was a really, he's, he's a really good dude, but he wasn't a good fit on our team. You know, he, he just wasn't a good fit because he has mm -hmm. to have the basketball in his hands and you can't play him and Kemba together, right? right. Because Kemba has to have the ball in his hands, or at least at the time he had to more right? Because he wasn't as good of a shooter um, as he is now. So, um, yeah, so so we get past that year. I get traded. I went to uh, Portland. It's a, different, it's a different town, different city. And uh, I ended up loving it, man. I mean, I love the games. It's not, I don't know if I could live in Portland, but the games were popping, man nothing else really going on. So everybody comes out to the game. So I had a, had a great year out in Portland. We had a group of guys that were really, really good. Everyone was like in a contract year. So that can be a gift and a curse, but it really just made everybody hungry. And so we all played together. And um, that was, that was to me, my most fun year hooping in the NBA was my year in Portland. What was it like to go through that 2016 playoffs against that that series against against the Warriors? That was the most that was the most fun I've had. I mean, we played, we beat the Clippers, who, who uh, Chris Paul and and Blake Griffin both got injuries during that. Um, not to say that they would have beat us, 
had they not. But, um, you know, the injuries certainly helped us. And we beat them in five games, six games maybe. Um, and then we beat we beat Golden State one time, I believe, at home. Yeah, Dame had uh, 40. Dame had 40. Dame had 40. Dame's the best dude on earth, man. He really is. Um, and, you know, we ended up losing to them in the fifth game, I think, in Golden State. I think. And then, um, mm-hmm. you know, they ended up winning. They ended up winning that year, which they were supposed to beat us. But for that team that we had, we were supposed to be 27th, 28th in the league. You know, that's what they were ranking us before the season. I remember Terry Stotts putting up that stuff before the season started. Like, yo, this is what they're expecting from this group, just so you guys know. And then we ended up being 7th in the East, right? Or 7th in the West, sorry. Which was, I mean, everyone saw us at like 15th, 16th in the West. So we surprised everybody, but we just had a hungry together group, um, you know. So it worked out. All right, last one for me is the before we get to our final rejecting the screen question is that that year with Philly, your last year in the league, and Joel Embiid played played thirty one games. What did you? What were your impressions of Joel on and off the court as as a rookie? <laughs> um. Joel's another really good cat. Um, you know, he is a kind of unicorn in, in a type. It's like he's, um, you know, he's he's from another country. He knows multiple languages. Um, very smart kid. Um, you know, as, as much as you see from him as like, he's always... <laughs> He's always like putting on a show somehow, you know, he's always doing something as like, you know, his entertainment value is all very, always very high, mm-hmm. but he's actually a very chill, humble cat. He really is. He's just a normal, normal dude. Uh, he does that because he's, um, he enjoys the entertainment part of the kind of life he lives. But other than that, you know, he knows what he's doing. He's not doing anything or he's just being wild or anything. He knows what he's doing. Um, he's And he's silly. He's still young, you know, so he likes doing all that stuff. But um, And that's before basketball starts. He's He is a – for him to pick up the game of basketball, which I believe he only started in his teenage years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for him to be as good as he got so quickly um, is remarkable. And, you know, he's very smart. Like I said, he picked up the game quickly. His skill level's very high. I hope as he continues to get older that he really realizes how big he is every single night and shies away from the perimeter, even though the kind of he likes to show his skill level, right, which is cool. but. I think he should show his skill level closer to the basket because he's such a humongous human being, like kind of like Greg Oden, mm-hmm. you know, not as tall, not as tall as Greg, but he's so humongous. He, he, he needs to take advantage of that more. And he likes to, 
you know, get cute and, you know, do do, do finesse and stuff, which he ha- also has in his game. But uh, he can simplify his game and and stuff so much better if he gets closer to the basket. And those 30 games that I played with him, I mean, his numbers were off the charts. He was a freak of nature in those 30 games. He averaged like 20, 20-something points. I can't remember off the top of my head, but he averaged right more or right around the amount of um, minutes that he averaged. He averaged points. And then his rebounds and um, everything were off the charts for the minutes that he was playing. So, yeah, he, he showed everybody a glimpse then of what, he, what he's doing now. Yeah, he was, he was 20 and 8 in 25 minutes. For what he was doing and, you know, playing every <laughs> once a week. Yeah, right. <laughs> pretty damn right. Yeah. Yeah. right. Incredible. Um, all right, I lied. Last one. I remember years ago when I had you on NBA radio, I think it was the first time we talked, I said, what we should do is we should set up a televised golf event where there's no host or anything and it's just the guys talking trash and playing with each other and it's you against Steph. And then fast forward <laughs> to the time in the pandemic when it's the biggest thing on television when it's Tiger and Phil and um, and Peyton and Brady. We really could have been ahead of the times, but if you and Steph went out there today and played, who wins? Well, I didn't get to watch him this weekend in Tahoe, um, but me and Steph, we talked about it. We talk about it every time we see each other. How it's a, it's a shame that we've known each other. We've known each other since we were kids. Um, that we've known each other for so long, and we have not played golf together yet. I played golf what countless times with his dad, and never played with Steph. You know, since we've been pros, we're never in the same place at the same time. But um, you know. We got a lot of mutual friends and, um, you know, a lot of people say we're probably right around the same. So I can't say. Okay. All right. I, the- I won't put myself out there. I got to, I got to see him in person. He's got to see me in person to get a real feel for that. A couple of times too, because golf's one of those sports, like, like a lot of sports where you just see somebody one time you know, like you can have, you can be a scratch handicap, but I just shot 77 yesterday. You know, that ain't, that's trash. You know, I can't do nothing with a 77. I can't beat <laughs> Steph with a 77. I mean, Roy Williams you know? is a four, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not, not the day I was hitting balls. <laughs> All right. The Rejecting the Screen podcast. We always ask this is the final question. Any one of your teammates that you've ever played with on any level, who are you choosing to give the ball to, reject the screen, go ISO, get a bucket? Oh, man. That's a tough one. Could be high school. Could be AAU. Could be a Duke. I know it's not going to be John Shire. It could be in the NBA. <laughs> not going to be John Shire. That's for sure. If, if it was a teammate, it would be John Shire. A friend, it would be John Shire. <laughs> A good dresser, dresser, it would not be John Shire. Um, but try to reject the screen. It's a, it's a toss up 
between now now you got to hear me out here okay it's a toss up between three guys and one of them can't dribble okay so <laughs> you got you got Kemble Walker okay and you got Damian Lillard okay mm-hmm. um i'm giving dame just a bit of an edge on kemba because of the kind of rate that he can score the basketball from so many places. You know, he's a little bigger than Kemba. And um, it's tough. It's tough because they're both elite. But I think Dame's – I think Dame's top five. I'm not sure that Kemba gets in the top five, but he's certainly top 15 to me. And then – I know he's going here. (laughs) <laughs> you got one guy that can't dribble that you said, who would I have? Go get a bucket, right? I wouldn't put him, I wouldn't put him on a screen. He'd be setting the screen and I'd be throwing back to him or he'd be going in the post. It would be uh, Al Jefferson. Okay. Because oh. Al Jefferson can go get a bucket. Okay. And his prime, which I thought was his, his really good year with us in Charlotte when we made the playoffs. He, he, man, we, me and you used to, uh, his favorite block was the left block and the, the two guards wing was the left wing. So I ran the left wing. So it was my job to get him the basketball. And he was a savant down there, man. Savant. Fakes. Slow, he was slow as hell. He uses fakes. He had incredible touch. Okay. For, for a man that size to be able to, softly put the basketball on the rim like he was able to. I ain't never seen anything like that in my life. Okay. So to go get an actual bucket, I'd actually give it to Big Al because he's closer to the basket and it's a higher percentage than both of those goods could ever shoot. So All right, we, we definitely will make sure Wayne Ellington does not hear this. <laughs> well, Wayne at the time, at the time in high school, to that point, it might have been Wayne. Because Wayne, I wouldn't give it to myself because Wayne could score better than me in high school. Wayne had, like, he could, he had, you know, he would dribble a lot more. His ball handling skills were great, and he could really shoot the basketball. My my dad always used to tell me, he's like, yo, man, you got to get some Wayne in your game. Right? He, <laughs> he <laughs> me right? But, uh. Yeah, at, the, at that time in high school, Wayne certainly was one of the best scorers that I had seen on our level. Well, we appreciate it. Thanks so oh, much for the time. It. It's been great. It's, this has been great. Thank you. Continue. You got to yeah, get back to being a parent. We both got to get back to being parents here, or all three know, of us man. do. It's, it's uh, past 5 o'clock now on a Monday, so these kids are looking for their parents. So I got to <laughs> go get in the pool or something. We'll see. Yeah, they're, they're not checking out Dr. J's other fridge. That's for no, sure. they're not. They're yeah. not. They're they're in quarantine. You know what? The the our fridge almost got a lock on it now because during this quarantine time, they them going in the pantry and the refrigerator has been an issue. They just don't. It's nonstop. I'm sure you guys know about it. Yes. It's understandable yes. though. Yes, it's understandable. All right. Well, continued <laughs> yep. good health to everybody. We'll speak soon. Thanks, Joe. All right. Now, see you. That was a lot of fun. And I'm telling you, when I I had Gerald on as a guest on NBA radio years ago. And I did say, Hey, let's do this 
maybe we can get Under Armour behind it or something, some sort of televised golf event with you and Steph since, you know, they go way back. Mm -hmm. And now it just wouldn't be so novel since it happened during the pandemic. That's a great call. I was thinking he he could have, we had already taken up so much of his time, but I was thinking they could have played in 2016 playoffs when it's Blazers Warriors. Why, uh, why not just take an afternoon and, and go at it then, you know? He right, said and gone never a little Michael, place, Michael Jordan, Danny Ainge. Exactly, exactly. He would have been a hero had he worn Steph out and then Steph shoots like three for 19. Right. would have been perfect. You know, 99 at Brookline, when he mentioned that he was at the Ryder Cup with his dad and he ended up with Jordan and Mario Lemieux and, and, and Brett Hull. 99 at Brookline, I always wanted to go to Boston University. It was the only college application I had. My dad had gone there. All his friends had gone there his, that he grew up with. My first babysitters, the girls across the street, they all went to Boston University. I only wanted to go wow. to BU. My parents said, "You should, you know, how about you go look at Northwestern as well because of the, the journalism school. So my dad and I take a trip to Chicago during the, there was that Ryder Cup weekend. And we wake up and we'd done some fun things in Chicago that weekend. And we wake up that Sunday morning and I had a, a tour and, a, and then maybe an interview scheduled or whatever it was. And we wake up and the U.S. starts making this comeback on Sunday morning. So we're sitting in the hotel and we're watching and watching it. And he says, you want to go to BU, right? I said, yeah. He said, all right, don't tell your mother. So we never went to Northwestern. <laughs> <laughs> That's a when, great story. And when we were driving, I think maybe back to the airport, maybe, he said, he pointed across the river and he said, that, that's Northwestern, I think. <laughs> Never <laughs> went to Northwestern. But we got, to, but we, we went out, we got pizza, deep dish pizza, of course. And then we, and we watched the greatest comeback in Ryder Cup history. Wow, look at that. Memories forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, And then we ended, we ended up telling my mom, but. Yeah, a lesser education, but look, memories forever. You know right. what I mean? So there you right. go. Right. There you go. All right. So you can go back and listen to all the other going ISO editions of rejecting the screen since they're all evergreen. Go back mm -hmm. and enjoy all the stories from former players like Kevin Willis, Sam Mitchell, Richard Jefferson, journalists like Peter Vesey, Ryan Russillo. So many to enjoy. So please do so. Follow us on Instagram. Help out Avery Adams teenage daughter who's now running oh, the show there. I have an update and from Tuesday. I have an update from okay. Tuesday. Remember Tuesday we talked about what, how you're going to handle this? Yeah. I know these episodes are evergreen, but still, it's an update from Tuesday. She said you need to send all posts to her and they have to be filtered through her. So okay, so, so what do I do? I, need to... I can't post on my own. Okay, so now, one, I need her phone number. And two, yeah. do I need to, what, like, make the post, screenshot it, and send it? Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Let's okay. go that route. Yeah, we'll try it. See what she says about that new social media coordinator. She's got. She's. Uh, My goodness. She's tough. She's tough. Whatever works. But she gets results. She gets results. I mean, we'll see. She hasn't posted anything yet. We'll see. Rejecting underscore the underscore screen on Instagram. Adams on Twitter at Naismith lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov. C O S L O V. Here's what else is going on on the Lockdown Podcast Network. Hollinger and Duncan every Monday. Chad Ford's NBA Big Board, all things NBA draft. Locked on Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd. Locked on NBA five days a week. Ben Golliver, who's on, I believe it's Thursdays, with David Locke every week. And Ben Golliver, the Washington Post, is in the bubble. 
So get inside the bubble, mm-hmm. Locked On NBA, and also your team every single day here on the Locked On Podcast Network. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.